Acts chapter 15. And moving into chapter 16, you heard the text that was read. There are some unique moments of decision that emerge from our text. We really have three paragraphs that we're examining this morning. And they each have a little bit of study for us to do in order to glean from these texts. In the first paragraph, we want to know how was it that Paul and Barnabas decided to part ways? Is there anything in our understanding of this text that is skewed? Do we think there's something wrong here? In the second paragraph, it's a bit interesting to see that Paul has Timothy circumcised when the Jerusalem council had just announced with clarity that circumcision is in no way part of salvation. So what is that about? And then in the third paragraph, we want to explore how does the Spirit forbid or disallow a course of action for the people of God? You see, making decisions is the stuff of everyday life which means it will also be a part of our spiritual lives. And more than that, in keeping with the theme of Acts, decision-making will be a part of kingdom advancing. So you have to make decisions regarding how you're in the word and how you witness by your actions and your words in your community. You have to make decisions about how you participate in the body of the church, God's people here on earth, his kingdom that's advancing. So the advance of the kingdom, which is the theme of the book of Acts, gets really practical in the form of making decisions. What can we learn from our text about decision making? The format of your notes there is five questions. I want to suggest these five questions that you should ask when making kingdom advancing decisions, which is really anything about your spiritual walk, your spiritual witness, and your participation in the ministry of a local church. Five questions you should ask in making kingdom advancing decisions. I want us to begin with Paul's words in verse 36 of chapter 15 when he says to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. In this text, we tend to highlight the conflict that led to separation, but that is not the main point of this paragraph. There's a bigger picture to see. And our first question to ask when making kingdom advancing decisions is this. How does my situation or question or need fit in the big picture of kingdom advance? How does my situation fit in the big picture of kingdom advance? You see, in Paul's words there to Barnabas, we see the big picture of the kingdom advancing. They had gone through all these cities and proclaimed the word of the Lord. They're making Jesus known. That's what the kingdom advancing means. 
We're spreading the fame and the name of Jesus everywhere. We're announcing that salvation is found only in this name of Jesus. Jesus, which means Savior. He'll save his people from their sins. When we make that message known, we're advancing the kingdom. And Paul and Barnabas had done that. And Paul's concern now is to go back into those cities and see how they're doing. But that's the big picture. We dive into this text and we want to know who's at fault. Was it Paul or Barnabas in this conflict? And we miss that opening sentence that gave us the big idea, which is the kingdom is advancing. And he uses those key first words, let us. They are united in this, the advance of the kingdom. Paul wants to visit these brothers in the cities where they had proclaimed the word. And his purpose, he says, is to see how they are. Well, the question that we should ask is, how are they with what? What does Paul want to know about these brothers in these cities? Does he want to know how they're doing with their desire to lose a few pounds or exercise more? Probably not high on his list. To see how they're doing with that plan to add another barn because the herds were growing? That's ah, probably not what he means. To us, it sounds pretty common. Want to go back and visit the brothers and see how they are. But our text tells us it's deeper than that. He wants to go back to these brothers who were made brothers and sisters in Christ because of the word that was preached. He says, let's go back to these cities where we proclaimed the word of God and see how they are in relation to the word of God. Are they still standing in faith? Are they still trusting Jesus to be their good shepherd and lead them, even if it has been hard to be a Christian in those areas? His concern is for their rootedness and their groundedness in God's truth. He doesn't want to know just how they are in everyday life. Not that he was unconcerned about that. But I think the text instructs us into what Paul's passion was. He wants to know how they're doing in believing and living out the word of the Lord that was preached to them. And so right away, we, we are already learning something about life together as the people of God in advancing the kingdom. We're supposed to have an antenna up to know how others are doing in believing what God has said and living it out. Do that this week. Oh, there may be programs that kind of prime the pump. You could gather Thursday morning with the ladies and study here in the book of Acts. There's, there's fellowship, there's conversation there, there's looking into the Bible. But, but you don't need a designated time and place to do that, to have an antenna that is aware of people and you're asking them, now, how are you doing? I know, I know that's a hard situation. Are you trusting God in that? Because what we see in the text is that's what Paul wanted to do. Go back to those places and say, remember what I told you about Jesus? Are you still believing that? Is it giving you the confidence you need to stand for him? Are you being a witness? 
These are the kind of questions we need to be asking, and it starts by remembering the big picture of kingdom advance. The mission was clear, even if, as the text unfolds, the personnel arrangements were not clear. Who's going to go on this trip and who's not? That's all coming in the text, but don't miss what is clear, the mission, advancing the kingdom, anchoring the saints in God's word. Because really, despite the parting of ways that follows, the reality is everybody, even in their parting of ways, was still involved in this great purpose of advancing the kingdom. What Paul said, let us go back and visit the churches, see how they're doing. Even after this parting of ways that follows in the text, everybody was involved in that purpose. They did not lose sight of the big picture. They may not have been together in all the same places, and those different places are listed in the text, but they were together in the same purpose, making Christ known. So when you're asking questions about how to be involved, about discipleship or service, the life of the church, don't lose sight of the big picture of the kingdom's advance. Ask yourself, what is my next step of spiritual growth? In my maturity right now, what does God want from me? What should I be involved in? What's my place in that big picture? of this kingdom's advance. There are other decisions that are pretty significant when thinking of jobs or relocating or should I get married? Those questions should fall under this umbrella of the big picture. How does God want me to advance the kingdom? That factors into these, what we would think of as mundane decisions. Now, if this first question highlights the unity of our purpose, the kingdom's advance, the second question we want to look at will highlight the diversity of the practice of our gifts, even if we have the same big purpose. Remember the big purpose. That's the answer to question number one. Question number two is this. How can differing gifts be used well? How can differing gifts be used well. Now this question follows our first question. We we have to keep the big picture in mind, the kingdom's advance. Because when we come to our text, we begin to read of this separation. Verse 37, text says, Barnabas wanted. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. It's his cousin, we find out in Colossians. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. And that that's just a fact. There's nothing loaded there. There's, there's no right or wrong in that sentence. What do we know of this Barnabas? In chapter 4, we realize he had another name, but he was nicknamed Barnabas. Bar meaning son, and the rest of it meaning encouragement. They nicknamed him the son of encouragement. Th- this guy is, is the model disciple maker. He's willing to roll up his sleeves and stoop down in any situation and take that person and walk them through the truth of who God is and what he said and help them to to live that life that pleases the Lord. He'll explore their gifts with them and he'll give them opportunities 
This is what he does. He's the son of encouragement. We see it unfold in chapter 9. When no one was trusting Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of the church, who claims to have been converted to faith in the way, the following of Jesus, one man is willing to roll up his sleeves and do what no one else was willing to do. Give Saul a chance. In chapter 11 and verse 24, we're told that Barnabas is a man who who lives his life full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So we really have no reason to be suspicious of Barnabas when the text says he wants to take John Mark, who had left them on the previous missionary journey. He had gone with them to the island of Cyprus, but then when they sailed to the mainland of what we think of now as Turkey, he went back to home church and Paul and Barnabas press on. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. He wants to practice again his gift of encouragement. He knows the guy turned back before, but he sees something in him and and he wants to give him a chance. Our text goes on. Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. You can read Paul's letters. Paul is bold and confrontational with truth. Oh, he can be caring. We see that in Thessalonians. He likens his ministry to that of a nursing mother, a a certain tenderness that is just willing to work with people. But plenty of times we see Paul in his intellect and in his spirit-led courage to just spit out the truth and sometimes in sharp, precise ways, especially in dealing with opponents, those who opposed him in the truth. So Paul is bold and confrontational. He's courageous in the face of hardships. He lists them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's facing shipwrecks and stonings and beatings and imprisonments. And it's almost like he says, bring it on. I'll face it all for the cause of the gospel. He's just, he's just that kind of guy, specially made for hard places. I think this kind of makeup is what shapes a lot of the missionary movement of the past. Frankly, it's why some of you may sit here and not in other places around the world. God just hasn't kind of built you for this almost reckless abandon of being anywhere and facing anything. On the other hand... Some of you might be made for that and should sit here only for a short time more before you branch out on that kind of adventuresome life of full-time proclaiming the word of the Lord. That's what Paul is. And to think about it, he says, John Mark turned back from us and we went on to do the work. Well, if you remember That meant preaching in these cities, and in one of those cities, Paul is stoned and left for dead. With that experience under his belt, he's not looking fondly on the person who turned back, who didn't want to face that kind of stuff, and yet Paul did face it. Then the text says, after Barnabas wanted, and Paul thought it best, 
there arose a sharp disagreement. Now, what do you think of this sharp disagreement? Maybe it's more what you've heard about it. The language here is a word that's rarely used. It shows up in Hebrews, though, when we're told to provoke one another to love and good works. It means to stir up. So before we get to it came to blows and Paul had his hands around Barnabas' neck, shaking him, let's start with the provoking to love and good works in Hebrews and realize there was a stirring there, there, there was a discussion. There's a lot of ideas on the table. Barnabas really wants to see John Mark have another chance. Paul's like, I, I can't afford to get out there and be trusting a guy who's not trustworthy. And that there was a stirring up. Interestingly, no sin is assigned to any party. You should be able to see that in the text. You should be able to take whatever preconceived notion you have about Paul and Barnabas parting ways and look at the text and see nobody is said to be wrong. We could actually say, well, I think Paul's right to pass on John Mark. Proverbs says an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth. Ever had that sore tooth and it's just throbbing? You don't want to bite on it. You don't want to take a drink of hot or cold. An unfaithful man is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. Maybe you've sprained an ankle, injured a toe. You don't want to put any pressure on it. It it can't hold it up. So maybe Paul's right. If you can't trust this guy, maybe he shouldn't go. But could we not also say that Barnabas is right to invest in a young man who who has a heart to do it, but maybe just wasn't ready last time, who maybe shouldn't have turned back, but did. But is he permanently on the scrap heap? Or can a guy like Barnabas with that big heart to make other people successful in God's eyes, could we not say, man, I don't have the patience for it. I'm glad the Barnabases do. So maybe Barnabas was right. I think we have to step back from this and and just observe that sometimes conflict is unavoidable in matters of perspective, in matters of priority, in matters of preference. But even in that tension or conflict, Obviously, we should be aiming for peace. So the question arises, what in this text makes us think this wasn't a peaceful parting? And obviously, it would be that language, however it's translated there in your text, of the strong disagreement or the sharp disagreement. I think the weight of the language is, yes, there was a lot going on in this conversation. But I think it's safe for us to assume that it was in the realm of preference, perspective, and priority, and not a matter of purpose. Question number one, where does this fit in the big picture? Paul and Barnabas never abandoned anything of the purpose. Go and be witnesses. And as we go, visit these churches and strengthen those who have believed. And that unfolds in the rest of the text. 
But this conflict and tension was there. Romans 12 tells us to live in harmony with each other and as much as it depends on you to be at peace. But let's face it, you've tried to make peace at times and it just couldn't happen. You just couldn't get there. The the perspectives were too different. The, The convictions or the priorities that people had just would not match and so you just have to agree to disagree on the matter. But in those conflicts, or maybe it's best to just call it tension, a difference, let us remind ourselves of the big picture, of the unity that we do have in purpose, even if in practice things look a little different. In part, this is how we can have wonderful fellowship with believers and churches all over our city who may in practice do things differently. In preference and in their priority or their perspective, their worship service may look different, their music may sound different, their preaching may be a different style, their pastor may wear jeans and a Hawaiian shirt, which I do not have on right now. But would it affect the proclamation of the word? We'd have to kind of recognize, not not essentially. So there may be difference. There are people who used to sit in this congregation and sit in another congregation now. And it wasn't because it came to blows and we just couldn't make it work. No, there were differences in preference or perspective, priorities. Not that they weren't biblically rooted, but it wasn't over the gospel. And in some way, though we may not like it, we need to be at peace with parting of ways at times. It doesn't have to be somebody was sinfully wrong. Now that happens too. But coming to this text, in thinking through the kingdom advance and how do we make decisions, this is a key decision in the New Testament regarding matters of ministry. And I'm afraid we came to it, or we have at least at times, with a simplistic approach like, oh, they, it, they just couldn't work it out and had to part ways, and we picture them stomping off in opposite directions. Well, fine, you take John Mark, and I'm just going to... Where do we get that? When it was clear in the first verse, verse 36, there's a unity of purpose, maybe we need to come to grips with how there can be a diversity in the practice of that purpose. Can we trust the Lord even when we disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ? Wrestle with this, please, because there are families that you are fellowshipping with in this body that don't do things the way you do in your family. And you may have conversations about that. You may ask questions. You may want to explore why that is. But hopefully you'll conclude that it doesn't have to be a matter that they're not as spiritual or that they're even sinful but that there can be a a different set of priorities that they're working by, biblically-based priorities. When we look at our story here, we see that this separation because of disagreements does not derail God's plan for kingdom advance. Quite frankly, (laughs) the joke's on them. Now there's two groups going out. There used to be one, and now there's two, both accomplishing the same purpose. So if we think this was problematic, when we look at it, God takes it and he he takes even our flaws and foibles and 
He works them for the good of his church and his kingdom. If he can use the wrath of man for his own glory, surely he can use our good intentions. Barnabas's good intentions for John Mark, even if there was something wrong with it, Paul's good intentions for the importance of ministry, not trusting it to a novice. God takes those good intentions and now he has multiple groups of missionary teams going out. In addition, John Mark has another opportunity to mature and to serve and to learn from the master teacher Barnabas. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 acknowledges the good ministry of Barnabas. And when he's describing how ministry should be or ministry justifies being supported, he lists himself and Barnabas as marquee examples of ministers. So down the road, Paul is not thinking Barnabas is off his chair. He lost his mind. What's that guy thinking? He'll never amount to anything. Quite the contrary. For the rest of Paul's days, he recognizes Barnabas is the guy. <laughs> Paul's own story is intricately woven into the ministry of Barnabas. And for the rest of his days, he's commending that ministry. Even more specifically, Paul will be reconciled with John Mark based on what we read in Philemon chapter 24. Paul writing to Philemon in his closing words says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do John Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Here in Acts 15, it's like, no, that guy's not fit to go with this. He's not a fellow worker. Later on in the letter to Philemon, he says, here's greetings from, from kind of the, the first team, all Americans that are traveling with me. John Mark's one of them. Nod to Barnabas, keep up the good work, son of encouragement. Another trophy of grace, another trophy of encouragement in John Mark. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writing from prison says, Luke alone is with me. Get John Mark and bring him with you. He is very useful for my ministry. What a story. God taking perspectives of two faithful servants, Barnabas and Paul. And they part ways and we think, oh no, that must be a bad thing. And yet the rest of the story unfolds and we can't find any reason why they should not have parted. Perhaps we need to not make so much of this separation based on what we don't know and instead be encouraged by what we do know. All the gifts and all the perspectives were used to their fullest for the kingdom of God. So we, we don't really need to know if any crossword was said or if there was some kind of apology needed. What is preserved for us by the Holy Spirit through Luke is the fruit of this. It, it, it's just encouraging to us. What you and I can mess up doesn't really mess up God's plan. Christ Jesus said, I will build my church, and it's not 
accepted on our flaws. Jesus didn't say, I'll build my church oh, until it really stalls out because those people at Grace Bible Church still have their differences. No, that's not what he said. God swallows that all up for the good of his church and for the glory of his name. And it's rich in scripture to come across those texts where even this story finds a little bit of resolution in our hearts and minds so that we can know, we can know that despite this separation, God was at work. Question number three, in making these kingdom advancing ministry decisions, we should be asking ourselves, how am I doing at making disciples? Because it's taking us back not only to that big picture question number one, but rooting that question even in the language of the Great Commission that we rehearsed together from Matthew 28. Jesus said, go and make disciples. So any decision-making, kingdom-advancing kind of work here should have that thought in mind. How does this affect making disciples? How does this give more opportunities for making disciples? So if it were a question of your job, what if it is the more hours and such? We find, what, how does this fit in the big picture? Advancing the kingdom. Well, certainly I can do that in the workplace. I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to be around more unbelievers. Then we come to this, how am I making disciples? Well, what if this was taking you away from rich ministry you had with people at church? It would be right to factor in my calling of Jesus to be a disciple maker into decisions I'm making that affect how my life fills up in a daily schedule. What we see in the text, verse 39, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Verse 40, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In chapter 16, Paul encounters Timothy in verse 3 and wants Timothy to accompany him. So he took him, circumcised him, made him part of the team. It's just a short emphasis on this nature of disciple-making. Barnabas is going to take John Mark and disciple him in the work of ministry. Paul is going to grab up Silas probably an equipped minister already, but then there's Timothy, needs to grow. He's going to take him along. Also interesting to note in chapter 16 and verse 10, it's the first use of the plural we in the book of Acts. Seems like here's where Luke joins the group and is now giving firsthand accounts. Immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia. It's this team of people, iron sharpening iron, disciples helping other disciples get it right to follow faithfully. So the question for all of us is, how am I making disciples? Now, I think too often we think of making disciples as if somebody like up on this teaching pedestal with vast maturity and Bible knowledge kind of reaches down or teaches like the little children at their feet. 
Like you're in a preschool class and you're fit now to teach little people, you know, how to follow Jesus. You make a disciple. But the reality is this is all of our relationships. Making disciples simply means urging, making, strengthening those who are trying to follow Jesus. So if making disciples sounds daunting, just ask yourself, how am I encouraging people to follow Jesus this week? What will that look like for you? And maybe by answering that question in a real tangible way this week, someone else in this room is going to be encouraged, going to be helped. They'll follow a little more faithfully because you took seriously the commission to make disciples. Question number four. How do I best serve the gospel? How do I best serve the gospel? Or how do I best represent the gospel? In essence, we want to know why Paul has Timothy circumcised. A few thoughts as we just kind of step back and think, what is this all about? Why implement this Jewish custom in this era of the church, what do we know? Number one, we know it was not as a condition for salvation. We've just read chapter 15. If you weren't here in the past weeks, you could go back and read it. The question arose from some of the Old Testament-minded people in the church. Well, wait a minute. Don't you have to be circumcised to be part of the people of God? After all, that's what God said to Abraham All of his descendants had to be circumcised. It was a sign that you were part of the covenant family. So don't you have to be circumcised now for salvation? They sent it up the line to the the elders and the apostles, and they hammered out the answer, no, no, it is not a condition for salvation. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be part of God's family now. You have to repent of your sin and believe in the work Jesus has done to save sinners. So it is not as a condition for salvation, based on what we studied in chapter 15, and what we hear Paul say in his letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, listen to what Paul says regarding circumcision. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. He hadn't been circumcised. Now he's a convert in ministry. And Paul's saying, no, he was not forced to be circumcised. Verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery... That was the crowd saying, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the good news, the gospel, might be preserved for you. Paul was saying, I am not going to cloud the good news by saying, repent and believe in Jesus, but also do this. No, I'm not going to do that. So he says, Titus doesn't need to be circumcised because there are no other conditions for salvation. So we know Paul's thinking on the matter. 
when our text tells us he took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Those places. Well, this is why we took these three paragraphs together. Our story began, Paul saying, let's go back to those places where we preach the good news and see how they're doing. Now we read, because of the Jews who still had this cloud in their mind about circumcision as belonging to the people of God, because of the Jews in those places, he takes Timothy and has him circumcised. Why? It seems Timothy is circumcised in order to eliminate any hurdle to the spread of the gospel among these Jewish people. It was not to appease the Judaizers who were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Chapter 15 shoots that down. Paul's own understanding in Galatians shoots that down. So he's not appeasing Judaizers. Rather, he's making Timothy acceptable to the synagogue audiences, to Jewish unbelievers when they have Paul and Timothy come into town and wouldn't even give them a hearing unless they had been circumcised. Now think with me. This is a transitional era, really in human history, but especially obviously for the Jewish people. We are moving from Old Testament ceremonies to New Testament realities in Christ. And And our story is happening when many Old Testament practices have not kind of fallen out of use. So many Jews are still being circumcised, even if they're believers in Jesus. They're observing the Passover. They're observing Sabbath and feast days. You'll hear Paul addressing that throughout his letters. So it's this transition where a lot of those customs are still happening, but they're not mandatory. Those who are hearing New Testament teaching are recognizing those things have found their fulfillment. But not everybody has come to understand that. So Paul's message is always that these customs should be viewed, and there was a a Greek word, a diaphora, which meant things indifferent. They're not essential to salvation, to the gospel. So they are squarely in the matter of conscience. Paul would describe the Sabbath that way. He would say, don't let anybody judge you by how you observe the Sabbath or other feast days. It's okay to still recognize what God was trying to emphasize in those Sabbath days or feast days, but just make sure your eye is to Jesus. It's a matter of conscience. Paul would speak this language in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Beginning in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, which would be requiring circumcision, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law in order to reach those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, 
not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law, those of the Gentiles. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if we understand that. I don't know if we would understand walking away from my job to take a different job that would put me around unbelievers. I don't think we understand some of the history of the church. We're in the height of Roman Empire and other empires that dominated the world with slavery. Some Christians volunteered to become slaves, missionaries to other slaves. I don't think we understand that. So we read this text. Paul has Timothy circumcised, and we're thinking, oh, it's just, what's this problem? That must be legalism. And we don't realize that Paul is saying, to those that are under the law that still think circumcision is important, I will keep every Old Testament law there is to keep if I can explain to them and have a hearing with them that all of those laws point to a great freedom that is found in Christ. I'll do anything to reach them regarding the law, though he says, though I don't feel like I'm under that law, I'll sign up for it if it means I have an opportunity to share good news. It just leads us to at least the challenging question of asking how does my decision to be a witness, how does my decision to advance the kingdom, whether that's the way I parent, the way I marry, the way I live my Christian life in the workplace, the way I participate in the life of the church, how is my life serving, representing, making known the gospel? The text doesn't give us a lot of details about Paul's thinking regarding this circumcision. We kind of have had to look elsewhere. But what we can see in the text is a very intentional commitment to the cause, to the gospel. I think Paul would simply tell us, hey, don't wrestle so much about the circumcision issue. Just walk worthy of your calling Represent the gospel well wherever you go this week. Finally, you should ask the question, how am I surrendered to the Spirit? How am I surrendered to the Spirit? This final paragraph is this story of what we call the Macedonian call. This vision of one calling Paul to this region. But it begs the question, how, how exactly did the Spirit do this? Like, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to forbid them to preach the gospel in that region and then to not allow them to preach it in another region and then to give them a vision that's clearly revelatory? They felt they needed to obey that, that vision and go and preach the gospel there. Well, maybe. Maybe there's something to the language we use of open and closed doors. That can get a little subjective. So I, I just give a word of caution. Um, you know, maybe I wasn't supposed to go to church today because my alarm didn't go off. And, you know, no, I don't think that's an open or closed door. So there's some faulty thinking that can happen in that language of closed doors. God closed that door. 
And sometimes you want to tell people, no, he didn't. Uh, get walking right through it. Do, go. But clearly, in our text, we see that the Holy Spirit forbid and didn't allow. So how do we wrestle with closed doors or open doors? And I want to suggest from the text here, somewhat indirectly, that the key word in wrestling with open and closed doors and the Spirit's leading is the word submission. Submission. First, we see that we must be willing to let go. The text is clear. Paul had a plan in mind. They were going to go to this region, and the Spirit didn't allow them. I don't know how that's always going to unfold in our lives, but I do know this. From this text and elsewhere in the Bible, that's why I say indirectly, we need to be willing to let go, to put down any plans that we have. Because if you're holding on tightly to a plan and God's moving you to do something, you're now at conflict with God because you have an idea and God has an idea. And it gets really challenging when it's multiple good things. How do I know which thing to go to do? Just be surrendered. Just be willing to let go of anything. Be in that place of surrender and the mystery of God's leading gets immediately simplified because you don't have an agenda. You don't have a dog in the fight, they would say. You're not saying, oh, I really hope it's this. And then when you really think God's wanting you to do something else, we start discerning in the tea leaves. Well, you know, maybe that's not what God wants me to do because after all, no, you're hanging on to your own idea. The only way you can discern the will of God is to be free of other plans. So submit, be willing to let go. We have to trust God's wisdom in goodness and goodness in his answer of no. Second, we must be willing to pick up. When God says, I have a task for you, you need to be surrendered and submissive, ready to do it. Because the vision comes to Paul, go to Macedonia. Well, that wasn't the original plan. That's not what he said to Barnabas when they parted ways. That's not where he set off for. But clearly, that's where God had him going. He was surrendered, willing to go a new direction, to follow a new plan, a new outlet for ministry, a new opportunity to serve. I know it's not what you drew up. It's not what you had envisioned. I know you're 55 years old and you thought you were going to pursue this vocation. But what if God is pointing you in a different way? Are you willing to take up that project? Are you willing to take that next step? Until we're in that place of submission, you, we will wrestle with, oh, I don't know what God's will is. But once you have the freedom of just doing anything that is good and right, because you don't have an agenda, God will have no problem making sure you get to the right place. Submission. Wrestle with submission in the Macedonian call. It's not the mystery of when will I get a vision. The great struggle is when will I be fully submitted? When will I be that living sacrifice in Romans 12? Longing for my life in its full to be used for kingdom advance. 
Nothing may change in your circumstances. You might be in just the job God wants you in, just the neighborhood, doing just what you need to be doing in the church, or any of those things might need to change. But rather than thinking, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to quit my job? That's not even on the table until your heart is on the altar. Don't entertain the what ifs until your heart is surrendered because God will communicate to a surrendered heart. He'll guide it. It's easily moldable. Just be there on the altar and he'll get you where you need to go. Three unique decision-making accounts. Conflict, circumcision, and midnight calls. It's not helpful unless we kind of step back and ask these big questions that get us to some principles that we can use for our decision-making today. Wrestle with each of these five questions. Remembering that maybe the simplest application is found in just asking, what is my next step of ministry to be? It might actually be just like an email this week is your next step of ministry. You might not know you're a son or daughter of encouragement because you're kind of timid. But God may awaken a Barnabas kind of spirit in you because you're just willing to say, what is my next step of kingdom advance this week? What would it look like for me to do what Paul and Barnabas did? Hey, I wonder how God's people are doing. I'm going to find out. I'm going to see how they are. Do something this week. I think that would be the clearest takeaway of our text. It's not about the conflict or why exactly was Timothy circumcised or how exactly do I know the Lord's will. It's get busy advancing the kingdom. And if that seems daunting to you, then focus on that last paragraph and remember God by the Holy Spirit guides us in the path that we should walk. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Even these texts that we may find challenging, that we have to think through, would you illuminate them and make them profitable to us for our godliness and for the sake of your kingdom? Bless us as we go through this week because some of our decisions need to be influenced by thoughts of the kingdom. Keep that from sounding cliche. Bring that down by the Spirit's conviction to each individual heart so that this week we will be busy. We will be busy cooperating with the great plan of Jesus to build his church. World without end. And so answer these prayers that we make in keeping with your will and in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.